Hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? Wasn't, wasn't worship awesome? That was so good. That was good for my soul. Uh, hey, we are in week two of You Asked For It, and we've been answering your questions that you've submitted. Uh, we've closed submissions for that, but we are in week two, and I am very excited today to hop into what we have. That was almost really bad, okay? That was almost really bad. Uh, but hey, So um, kind of some ground rules as we go throughout this series, and I'm gonna say this every single week, and I want everybody to know this. Um, just because someone is on stage, just because someone has a microphone, doesn't mean that they're an authority on something. Uh, and so we want to answer these questions that we have here, and we want to answer them based off of God's word, because God's word is the authority. The Bible is the authority, not me or not anybody else with a mic or anybody else with a platform or stage. God's word has the final say. And there are some questions that are, uh, we're going to answer that are explicitly answered. Like there's clearly in scripture, this is the prescription how you should live or how you should operate in this situation. But there are other things uh, where maybe it doesn't give you exactly what you need to do in a specific situation. The Bible doesn't give us an answer to every question specifically, but it does give us principles and it provides all that we need to live a life where we can honor God in every situation that we are in. There's this quote uh, by St. Augustine that says this, in the essentials, unity. There's things that we need to be united around. In the non-essentials, liberty, all right? Have some freedoms there. And in all things, charity. All right, so we can disagree, and here's the ground rules for disagreeing. We need to make sure we disagree based off of what the Bible says, that that's how we got there, that we disagree on our view, our interpretation of Scripture, but we're using Scripture to get to our answer. And the second thing is this, you have to love those you disagree with. Even if you think they're an idiot, okay? i just throw that out there, because we, we tend to think that people are idiots when they disagree or we don't line up with what they we, we don't think about things the same way they do. Um, uh, can I wrap myself out? All right, when I'm driving and there's people slowing down to get onto the highway, I'm not very charitable in that moment to that person. I'm kind of thinking to myself, you idiot, what are you doing? You're going 15 miles getting on the highway. You're going to cause a wreck. What's going on, right? Uh, we don't tend to be charitable to those that we have a disagreement with. We're, they would go about things differently than we do. So those are the ground rules, all right? We're going to have unity in the things that matter. There's going to be some freedom in some of those secondary and, and third things. Uh, and we want to have love in everything. Okay, so having said that, those are our ground rules. Let's go. Question number one. Dinosaurs. When do they live and why aren't they talked about in the Bible? It sounds like this one was submitted by my son because he loves dinosaurs, Okay. When did they live and why aren't they talked about in the Bible? So um, I, I don't know when they lived and I don't know why they aren't talked about in the Bible, but I'm gonna give you a few different views uh, of people and why they land, where they land, and I'm just gonna let you come to your own conclusion here. Okay, so if you believe in an old earth, uh, meaning that life evolved and, and there's Big Bang and that's how it came to be, and, and there are Christians who, who believe that, they read the Genesis account uh, as a day age interpretation of that. So each day that God says, they say that's an age. And so that's how evolution came to be. And so if you were to believe into an old earth, all right, dinosaur, dinosaurs would have been extinct well before man arrived. So they wouldn't be in the Bible because 
They were already fossils, okay? All right, now, the other side of that is not an old earth, but a, a young earth, all right? So taking the creation account in Genesis as a literal seven-day creation. So if you were to take that, you would say dinosaurs will be thousands of years old instead of millions of years old, okay? And uh, there's some people that say dinosaurs could have fit on the ark. Like there was room. If you brought some young dinosaurs, they could have made it, okay? Uh, some, some adolescent dinosaurs, they would fit. And so what they say is this, after the flood, because the Bible says that every animal came, so it would be weird for it to say, but, but dinosaurs, because they're too cool, okay? Uh, it would seem like a logical reason why dinosaurs would go extinct uh, is because after the flood, think about this, God the flooded the whole earth, and only those in the ark survived. Uh, if you were a big animal, it might be hard for you to find food to live and survive off of, because everything is gone. So they say that that would be a likely reason why dinosaurs went extinct uh, or possibly just the environmental changes after uh, a flood. So why aren't dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible? All right. The word dinosaur was created in the 1800s. So the reason that's not in the Bible, when the Bible was written, that wasn't even a word, right? They didn't even have that term. So there are a few passages that uh, they say some creature, right, they mention something, and they say it could be a, a dinosaur, right? Uh, the word dragon is used a lot in the Bible. I don't necessarily think it's talking about a dinosaur, but there's some people who believe that it could be, okay? Uh, then there's one passage in Job. It's Job 40, 15, and it says behemoth, and it kind of gives a description there, and it's almost as if God is describing a, a dinosaur. So uh, this is all we got. We're going to go for it. So it says, take a look at behemoth, which I made, just as I made you, it eats grass like an ox. See its powerful loins and the muscles of its belly. Its tail is as strong as cedar. The sinews of its thighs are knit together tightly. Its bones are tubes of bronze. And its limbs are bars of iron. It is an example of God's handiwork. And it's only, only its creator can threaten it. All right? I don't know if that's talking about a dinosaur, but that's about as close as we got in the Bible uh, for it talking about a dinosaur, okay? So there are a lot of animals that aren't explicitly mentioned in the Bible, uh, so why does God not talk about it? Maybe because we don't need to know much about dinosaurs to live a life that honors God. But when did they live? All right, depends on kind of your view of creation and why aren't they talked about in the Bible because uh, I don't think we need to know about dinosaurs to live a life that honors God. Next question. Would sickness have never entered the world if Adam and Eve never fail? Never fell. Would sickness have entered the world if Adam and Eve never fell? Uh, that's, that's correct. All right. Without sin, there'd be no sickness or death. Everything would have been as it was in the garden. It would have been perfect, right? God said that it was good. Uh, but here's the deal. This is a, a what if question. So what if? So if Adam and Eve never fell, that's right. There would be no sickness, there would be no death, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that no one after them wouldn't have fallen too because God's given us choice, all right? So it doesn't mean that the, their offspring might have not gone and eaten of the fruit. We don't know that. But I can tell you this, sickness would not have entered into the world if Adam and Eve would not have sinned, if they wouldn't have eaten of the fruit, if the world wouldn't have fallen uh, because that's what gives us brokenness because it's not the way God designed the world to operate. So no. There would not be sickness in the world if Adam and Eve did not fall. Next one. We're going through them, right? We're about to, we're about to get into some heavy ones here. 
going to turn it up. You guys, I've tried to make it easy, so I got some easy ones every week. And at the last week of this thing, it's going to be really hard-hitting questions because uh, you guys didn't give me many softball ones, okay? No soft toss. Sorry. What does the Bible say about divorce? What does the Bible say about divorce? Uh, before, we, before we hop into this, I want to, uh, just a few things, right? God's word is authority. This is not my opinion. This is what God has said in his word. And the second thing is this, you can't out the grace of God. So no matter where you find yourself in relation to this or, or any of these other questions, God can redeem and restore whatever situation you find yourself in. And it doesn't mean it's going to be instant, uh, but he can do it. He can do it. So before we dive into divorce, we need to talk about uh, what marriage is. And so we get kind of a definition of marriage in, in Mark 10, verses 1 through 6. They should be on the screen here. It says this, but God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Joined to his wife. And the two are united into one, since they are no longer two, but one. Verse 9, God says this, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Okay, so I want to I start there because we're going to get into some, some grounds, like what biblical grounds for divorce are. But I want to start there and just say, God takes marriage seriously, right? It's two people becoming one person, one flesh. And God says, let no one split apart what I have joined together. Because, see, Marriage, I know we think of it kind of as a legal thing, like you go and you sign your paperwork, you get your witnesses, uh, and you get it notarized, all that stuff, but really, biblically speaking, marriage is a commitment to one another, the, the people getting married, and a commitment to God, all right? It's not about a judge signing, I know we have that legally, but really what the Bible would say is marriage is between the two people getting married and him. It's a commitment, it's a covenant, it's no matter what. So it's one flesh. So we see three grounds for divorce uh, in Scripture, okay? And they all start with A, so it's, you know, I like some alliteration, okay? Uh, it's adultery, abandonment, and abuse. So I'm going to go look at these real quick. Adultery, Matthew 19, uh, verses 8 and 9 says this. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. And I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else, commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. Right, that unfaithful. So it's saying uh, that it is grounds, it is okay for divorce in the circumstance of adultery. Uh, and in all these, I want to be clear that I'm not saying that these are just like, you're out if these happen. I think there's grace that God can restore these situations. Uh, but maybe there's some wisdom about how to go in that, all right, if there's a marriage where there's adultery, all right, you know, there's going to be some things that change, all right, but you don't necessarily need to just ax it and say, I'm out. Maybe, depending on the circumstance, but uh, you never know. There's, there's certain situations where it might be um, you want to see what God can do in that situation. You want to work through some things there. So uh, the grounds for divorce that we see, the first one is adultery. The second one is abandonment. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, it says this. But if the husband or wife, who isn't a fellow believer, insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. So abandonment. So it's talking about a husband and a wife. They got married. Neither one of them is a believer. One of them becomes a believer. And they, the non-believing spouse is like, 
I want nothing to do with this. I want to leave. I don't want to be a part of you. You've changed. Uh, and I would say, yes, that's a good thing. By the grace of Jesus, they've changed, right? Uh, but that's what it's saying here, that you can live in peace. So instead of trying to keep that unity, right, to, you want to keep that unity. So maybe the only way to reconcile that is actually to go our own separate ways. So we have adultery, then we have abandonment, and the last one we have is abuse. And those first two are explicitly like, we just went through chapter and verse there, uh, and abuse is not explicitly written in scripture like that, but I'll tell you this, um, that violates, that, that passage you read at the beginning, Mark 10, that violates that whole principle of one flesh. You're not gonna abuse yourself. You shouldn't abuse your spouse. Whether that's physical, spiritual, physical, like whatever that looks like, you should not do that, right? And the, and the thing that goes with this, that's illegal too, right? Like to abuse your spouse. So uh, there's some people who would say that that's not necessarily a biblical thing, but I actually think uh, that that's exactly what God would say because that violates the way God ordained marriage to be one flesh. And so I just want to say again, all these are grounds for divorce, but that doesn't necessarily mean divorce should be the first option. And I don't know any specific situation. I don't know who asked this question, what they're going through. Uh, but I just know that God can redeem any situation if you'll give him time. That doesn't mean it's going to be perfect. Actually, it's going to be hard. You know what? Marriage is hard. Uh, I heard a pastor say this once, and it's just always stuck with me. Um, he said that he and his uh, girlfriend, fiance, I, I believe at this time, they always had this fight. And they had the same fight. Every eight to ten weeks, it seemed like, they would have this, this fight. Always, same exact fight, basically the same premise on the fight. Uh, and then uh, he was like, I just don't know if I'm going to marry her. He's talking to a mentor. He's like, I just don't know. We, all, we always go back to this one thing, and we keep having this one fight over and over and over again. And this, this counselor, this mentor is looking into him, and he says, look, you're going to fight with someone the rest of your life. Do you want it to be her? Okay, so I think when it comes to, to, to marriage, uh, look, no, nobody's marriage is perfect. You're going to fight with someone the rest of your life. And by God's grace, maybe that 8 to 10 weeks becomes 12 to 14. Okay, maybe it gets stretched out a little bit there. But you're going to fight with someone the rest of your life. Make sure it's someone that's worth fighting for. Make sure that it's someone that you are going to fight fair in that fight. You're going to be together because you're one flesh. One. Let's go to the next one here. Oof. You guys are just turning it up on me. The heat's getting a little hotter. We're getting, we're getting there. Do recent events, war, political strife, point to those signs in Daniel and Revelation when Jesus is to return? No, next question. No, I just plan. Hey, we're going to go into it a little more than that. Um, I will say this. We are closer now than we have ever been. That's a fact. You know how I know that's a fact? Because it doesn't matter if Jesus comes within the next 100 seconds or the next 1,000 years. We're closer than we've ever been because humanity is on a countdown clock. I don't know how much is left on that clock, but every second that passes, guess what? I can say factually, we're closer than we've ever been. And you've heard uh, televangelists and all kinds of people make a lot of money, I would say, kind of almost scaring people into believing that. And so um, I, I just want to say that's a fact. We are closer than we've ever been. I got no idea how much time is left on that, that clock that we don't know about. 
And so uh, instead of worrying about the events that are taking place, uh, things that are assigned to come, I think maybe a better use of our time would be that we get busy sharing our faith and living on mission instead of worrying about, is this the time? Right? Uh, almost every generation has, has a crowd, maybe the fringes. Uh, I think what's happening right now in our society is the fringes have more of a platform because they're kind of saying crazy stuff and crazy stuff gets more engagement and then social media engagement is what it's all about. So I think sometimes those fringes gets more uh, engagement and so people see it more. I think we're more aware of it. But it's happened in every single generation. There are people who just kind of think uh, that the end is coming in their time. Uh, I remember I had a, I had a class uh, in Bible college, and the professor put up this picture of, I can't remember if it was World War I or World War II, some of your history buffs could probably help me out, but he puts up this picture of an airplane. And this airplane has a gun that's shooting through the front of it. Uh, and it kind of, like, it's like a hole, and then it's like sticking out, and it kind of looks like, like a stinger, I guess. Does that, does that make sense? Like it's got this, this stinger that's sticking out there. And so uh, in Revelation 9.10, uh, I've got a verse here up on screen. You throw that up for me, Todd. It talks about the end times. Revelation 9.10. Got a few more to go. You got it. Can we give it up for Todd? He's a teenager back there running the slides, tearing it up. All right, we don't have it there. It's all good. But hey, here's the deal. It talks about how it will be like a bee. It will have a stinger like a bee. And there were people in the World War I or World War II that thought this is a sign of the end times. There is a plane that has this thing sticking out, and it looks like a stinger, and that's what I'm worried about. Matthew 24, 4, this is Jesus talking, and he's talking about the end times. And so we're going to read through this because it actually is going to address some of this, and I think it kind of puts it all together. Okay, Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, all these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nations go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. Excuse me. But it is, this is the, excuse me, but all this is the only the first of things to come. The first of birth pains and more to come. Then you will be persecuted, arrested, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you're my follower. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14 right here. Don't miss this. This is the last part. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. Last verse, verse 15. The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. So... Let's go back to this question. Do, do recent events, political strife and war, point to those signs in Daniel and in Revelation when Jesus is to return? Yeah. Right? It said there'll be wars, there'll be rumors of wars. 
That's been true for a really long time. It's been true for a really long time. And if you go back and it says, in verse 14 it says this, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear and then the end will come. Just a few closing thoughts on this question. Recent events could put us closer to the end. But like I said in the beginning, we're always getting closer. And so what I want to encourage you to do is run your race. It does not matter what's going on around you. Your duty, your calling hasn't changed. Right? You need to honor God and spread the gospel. All right, next question. Why is the Old Testament law so important? Why is the Old Testament law so important? Uh, it was very important. If you think about the context of when the law was given, remember when you read scripture, it was written in a specific context. It was written to somebody, it was written from somebody, and for a specific purpose. And so uh, we look at the context of the Old Testament. We're going to focus on just one, one specific part that I think will resonate with us, that I think we'll all get. Uh, and the one part I want to look at is why people should avoid, like the Jewish law, why they should avoid certain animals uh, and avoid, uh, not only just avoid them, but avoid eating certain animals as well. Um, anybody here smoke meats? Any smokers? I was going to say any smokers, but that might get a different response. Anybody here smoke meats? All right, got the Traeger. All right, awesome, awesome. Uh, all right, when you go to smoke, all right, you got your stuff, you got it all wrapped up, you got your, uh, your seasoning on it, and then... If you got the fancy ones, right, which I bet most of you guys do, you put that probe in there, right, and then you smoking to a desired temperature, right? And maybe I don't smoke, so I could be totally wrong here. You can correct me after service. But, hey, there are certain meats that we, we know. We have science. We have seen it. They have proven when it reaches this temperature, it's safe to eat. Like we know uh, chicken's got to be this high. Uh, bacon's got to be this high. Like there's, there's measurements that we have to have uh, that we know it's going to be safe to eat, I want you to think back to the context of when this was written. They're cooking on an open fire. All right, it, it, they don't have a thermometer. They don't have a probe that they're putting in. They don't have a lot of the stuff that we have today. So why would God tell them not to eat these things? It's because he doesn't want them to get sick. This is not going to be good for them. They don't have modern medicine. They don't know what temperature to reach this at, okay? And so he's trying to protect them. So God's law was for the benefit and the safety of God's people. And we've talked about this a few times already. Uh, Jesus came and he fulfilled the law. All right, so us as believers, we don't have to look to the law to make us right with God. We don't have to look to these rules, to not eating these certain things, to not wearing these certain things, not doing these certain things. Uh, we look to Jesus. So the Old Testament, what they did is they tried to follow the law and they looked forward to a Messiah, like they were believing that a Messiah was going to come. And what we do is we look back to Jesus. We look back to Jesus. Because he has fulfilled the Old Testament law. So we don't need to follow it like they did. Why was it so important? Because it was helping them stay safe. It was, it was for their benefit. Next one. All right, again, we're just turning it up a little bit more. I got two questions, very, very similar. There are a lot of, hello, there are a lot of 
religions and denominations out there that have a lot of similarities. I wouldn't think God is exclusively taking one religion or denomination. What are your thoughts? I'm going to read this next one because it goes right along with it. With all the different Christian religions, how do you know which one is the right one? Is there a wrong one? Right, there's a lot of religions and denominations out there, and there are a lot that have a lot of similarities, denominationally speaking, within Christianity. I wouldn't think God is exclusively taking one. What are your thoughts uh, with all the Christian, different Christian religions? How do you know which one is the right one? Uh, we say this a lot. Right? Anything less than Jesus is a weak refuge. That's what we're counting on, is Jesus. So there will be Methodists, Presbyterians, Assemblies of God, Baptists, Anglicans, Episcopals, Catholics, you name it, in heaven. They're going to be in heaven because their faith is in Jesus. All right, we might not agree or align up on some other stuff. And it might be easier in one denomination than another. I'm not going to get into that. There will be that whole swath of, of just people, of denominations. If their faith is in Jesus, guess what? They're going to be in heaven. On the flip side of that, there will be Methodist, Presbyterian, AG, Baptist, Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, all of them. There will be those that are in hell. Because their faith wasn't in Jesus. Their faith was in, I thought I was good by sitting in a seat. I thought I was good by having membership at this church. That's not Jesus. Anything less than Jesus is a weak refuge. So here's the deal. Jesus, he, he's exclusive. All right, in John 14, 6, uh, he says this. We should have it right there on the screen. Two more slides, Todd. You got it. Jesus told them, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's pretty exclusive. This is Jesus, his own words. Red letter, right? If you got a red letter Bible, right? the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's, that's pretty exclusive, right? No one can come to the Father except through through me, all right? That's what our faith is in. And I think sometimes we hear that, that Jesus is exclusive, that it's, it's just him. That's what he's saying here. God's word is the authority. It's not what I want. It's not what you want. It's God's word. He's saying he is the way, the truth, and life. No one. It's exclusive. And I, that, that hurts a little bit. Like, I think if we haven't heard that before, to think that it's just Jesus, that these other ones, they don't get to be with him forever in heaven because that's not what their faith is in. Uh, but here's the amazing part, that Jesus is exclusive. He is the only way, but he's also extremely inclusive, right? In John three sixteen, this is probably the most well-known passage of scripture uh, in all the planet. For this is how God loved the world. The world. Not America. Not Africa. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone Everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And it goes on to the next verse. It says, God sent him into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. 
the world, everyone. All right. There are no denominations that get it all right. Like, there is not a perfect denomination. There will be different denominations both present in heaven and in hell because you know what? It's all about Jesus. When you make it about something else, you've missed the mark. Christianity is exclusive. It's only through Jesus. But here's, here's the great part. Jesus is for everyone. There's nobody that can't make the cut. He wants you to come and to be with him. Because anything less than Jesus is a weak refuge. You can't count on it. And I just want to, as, you, as your pastor, I just want to tell you, if you're counting on your attendance and sitting here to make you right with God, like Jesus loves you whether you're here or not. Uh, and I, I want you to be here. Please don't hear this any other way. Uh, but there's one way to heaven, and it's through trusting in what he's done for us on the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection. It's not about me. It's not about this room. It's about him. Okay? Yes, uh, it is exclusive. If your faith isn't founded and grounded in Jesus, uh, you might want to see what Scripture has to say about that. Last question. Explain Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Hagar and Sarah, what is the meaning? There seems to be a mixed understanding of this Scripture. Uh, seems to be a mixed understanding of this Scripture. Uh, before we jump into that passage, we're going to read those 10 verses, if you'll, if you'll bear with me. Um, just a little bit of a backstory, some context for this passage in the New Testament. It's actually referencing something that happened in the Old Testament. Um, Abraham, he's, he's being blessed by God, and he is thinking that he is going to give all of his inheritance to a servant uh, because he doesn't have a son. Uh, so in Genesis 15, verse 4, he actually says this, And the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own, and he will be your heir. It goes on in verse 5. It says, Then the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. Abraham gets this promise from God. Your descendants are going to be like the stars. You're not even going to be able to count them. There's going to be so many of them. And I think Abraham, it's really easy to look at the Bible and to be like, man, what was he doing? He got impatient. What's going on? And just like to think that they didn't get it. Uh, but we do this a lot in our lives too, right? We get impatient. We want to do what we want to do. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah, or Sarai at this first part, after she has a birth, God changed her name to Sarah. Uh, God did that a lot. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are having trouble conceiving, all right? It's just not happening for them. Month after month, uh, no baby, no baby, no baby. Context, all right. They didn't have IVF. It was a different time. So uh, they had a different solution. Hagar, Sarah's servant, uh, was their human solution to this issue. So Sarah tells her husband, Abraham, I want you to get to know, all right, in a biblical sense, get to know uh, Hagar uh, so that we can have some descendants, we can have a child through her because we, we're, we're not going to be able to do this ourselves, but if you go with her, we can have a child through her. Uh, and so they go and, and do the deed, all right, and all right, they have a child there. Uh, and then later on, I'm trying to just give you the cliff notes because we're getting ready to read this 10 verses here. Uh, later on, Sarah actually gets uh, pregnant. And it's like very late in life, like well past childbearing years. This is a geriatric pregnancy, right? It really, like there's no other way to describe it. It is a miracle of 
God. So, so Abraham has two children, right? One born of human effort, like we're going to fix this. I know God has promised us this, but we're going to try to uh, fix that, like see, take that promise ourselves. Like we're going to make this happen. And then the other side is like God has a miracle. He's got one child that's born of human effort and one through a miracle. Let's hop into this passage. Galatians 4, 21 through 31. Tell me. And this, before I hop in, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church, uh, to the Galatians, okay, writing to the people in Galatia. He says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of his slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai where people received the law that enslaved them. Right? Mount Sinai, that's where God wrote the law. Right? He gave it uh, to uh, Moses. So that's what it's talking about there. Uh, so he represents Mount Sinai in Jerusalem in Arabia. Uh, because she and her children live in slavery to the law. It's talking about human effort. Uh, but the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman. And she is our mother. Next slide. Let's go to the next one. We got it. As Isaiah says, rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never been given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you, have, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want, who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born from human effort persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. So what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, we are children of the free woman. That was 10 verses, that was a lot. So let's, let's go through that, okay? Paul is trying to make a point here. He's trying to, trying to make a point that we can't have right standing with God through human effort. That's a theme that you see throughout the New Testament. You cannot have right standing with God through human effort. You can't earn salvation. You can't. And so uh, remember, Jesus came and he fulfilled the law. We talked about that earlier. So, so they're not bound to it anymore. But I want you to think about this. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. But this is a shift. All of these people have been taught their whole lives that they have to obey this letter of the law. They have to do it exactly like that. And so Paul, what he's doing is saying, Jesus has freed you from that. You don't, you're not bound to that anymore. But you keep going back to it. You don't need to do that. Jesus has done it. But people, they want to cling to the law. Uh, and if I'm being honest, we do this too sometimes. We want to cling to things because guess what? If we're doing those things, it makes us feel better than the people who aren't. And that's what's going on here in this church. Human effort, earning, striving, achieving, 
it doesn't achieve anything in God's economy. It doesn't. It's all grace. It's all what Jesus has done for us. And that is the point that Paul is making here. He's using this Old Testament story that uh, these people would know in this context because, remember, they would know the story well because they're going back to the law. They have this story. They know it. So that's what he's getting at is that you see him, you see Abraham trying to go about it his own way, trying to have through human effort his own fulfillment of that promise instead of saying, God, I trust you and I trust that you are going to fulfill your promise. And notice it's not in the timeline that he wanted. And I think it's a lot like that for us. That God's given us promises. He's done great things for us. Uh, or he's promised great things for us. But we just get impatient in trusting God. And we try to go about it our own way. The only way to draw closer to God is actually to surrender. Trying to earn trying to achieve right standing with him. Uh, I, I talk about this a lot, but surrender is like this. Arms, arms open, hands open. Because uh, here's the deal. You can't receive anything with closed hands. You can't receive it. And, and I want to encourage you to surrender uh, to Jesus. To surrender all your troubles, all your worries, all your concerns. He can handle Here's what I think is amazing about my Jesus, our Jesus. You can give him your deepest, darkest secrets. He won't move away from you even a little. It makes him love you that much more that you put your hands out, that you were open, that you surrender. You didn't hold on to him. He wants to be with you. was a big passage there and we talk about it I just think there's so much there that applies to us today so as we continue to we're going to wrap up our time here maybe you just want to evaluate what's what's going on in your life am I trying to achieve right standing with God by doing these things that I, I think are right I'm not advocating for doing the wrong thing right but I'm telling you this the only way to earn right standing with God is to quit trying to surrender. Say, God, I trust you. I trust you. He's the one who gives us right standing with, with God. It's only through Jesus. And anything less than Jesus is a weak refuge. You can't count on it. You're never going to be good enough. None of us can take Jesus to the bank every time. He loves you. He wants nothing more than to be with you. And that's like this. Let's pray.